everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire. And all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up, and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I am here with Spike Mendelson. For those of you who don't know him, he was an instigator on Top Chef, but also now he is really, really changing uh, the way people view vegetables. And he's working with, eat, you know, he is Eat the Change and he's got a lot of fun stuff going on. So Spike, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I, I just, I don't know if I'm a right fit here because this is called losing your mind. I think, I think we could both admit we've already lost our minds though, right? <laughs> right, Chris? Like yeah. our minds have been lost. So this For is years. just increasing more losing of our minds. There, but this is just go. sharing how lost our minds are. Right. Okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, I, then I'm a perfect fit. I'm a perfect fit. So, Spike, <laughs> you know, people know you from Top Chef. And they know what you're doing now with Eat the Change and the plant-based restaurants. But I, I really want to start at the beginning of, you know, what made you say, hey, I I want to cook. I want to be in a kitchen. I wanna, I wanna make people smile with food. What was that? What was that catalyst that started it all for you? Well, really, really interesting that you bring that up because uh, I was a little bit, I'm I'm one of those kitchen rats that I, I grew up in the family industry. Uh, you know, um, I'm from Montreal and my grandfather and, and his brothers owned many restaurants in, in the industry and, and my mother grew up in that industry. So for me, um, it wasn't kind of a moment of like, oh, like I, this is, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was actually completely opposite. It was, I don't want to fucking do this at all in my life <laughs> because, uh, I, I grew up you know, I was that kid, like holidays, uh, weekends, I was in the dish pit, I was scrubbing grease traps, I was cleaning, you know, emptying fryers. And, and this was all at a very young age. So I grew up in a little bit of the era, it was like towards the end of it, of the unglorified part of the industry, right? We, we chefs weren't celebrities, we didn't have TV shows, or platforms to go on. Uh, none of that existed, right? What it, what what the business uh, to me was was hard work, you know, in a in a, a kitchen subculture uh, filled with drugs and drama and 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 misfits. And you know, as a kid, uh, you know, when your friends are jet skiing on the weekends on the beaches of Florida and all this kind of stuff, it's not it's not really the business that that you want to grow up in. So I actually fought against being in the industry for a good amount of time in my life. Uh, early on, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a film producer. I wanted to be like, a, I wanted to be like a, a showbiz guy. Like I wanted to make movies. And, and, and that's kind of, you know, I even I got so desperate that I took, even took like marine biology courses at some point in my life to try to like figure out a way out of the industry. Right. But as you know, in this industry, you get you, you keep getting pulled in. Right. Um, and, you know, I was very lost as a teenager on what I wanted to do. I, I did, you know, I was, wasn't good at school. That was for sure. I never got good grades. 
Uh, in fact, I dropped out of uh, high school. Uh, I was I was being sent to a military school, Chris. I went to military school, two different military schools when I was growing up. And um, I kind of ran away from home. So, you know, I was joking with you about your son that just turned 18. You know, I, I left I left my house when I was 17. I had a, a big moment of, you know, kind of fuck this. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go to military school and I don't want to be working in restaurants my entire life. So I, I kind of ran off and, and uh, I started doing my own thing, working in clubs and getting involved, getting in trouble, basically, Chris. I was just getting in massive trouble. Um, and but this is all the, still in Montreal. You're getting in trouble in Montreal. Oh, uh, uh, so M Montreal was younger. So let, let me just reset. So I spent my up until my early teens in Montreal, my family, um, which is big Greek family restauranters, we all, you know, about 20 of us moved to uh, Spain for the World's Fair. We had 16 different restaurants in the World's Fair in uh, 1992 in Sevilla, Spain. So I got an exposure to a new culture and cuisine and uh, and a ton of different restaurants in, in a foreign country. And then when we moved back, instead of moving back to Montreal, we moved to the armpit of the world, uh, uh, you know, of, of America, which was Florida. And, uh, and Florida and me did not jive well. I, I, I doubled down in trouble in Florida. Like I was just, and you have to understand, let me like picture this, like, you know, in your early teens, you're just trying to figure out kind of what's cool and what you are. That was happening in Spain for me. So when I came back to the United States, well, when I, I decided to move, my parents decided to move to Florida because my grandma was there. When I got off the plane, I had, you know, a tucked in collared shirt, pants this high, you know, penny loafers on, high socks, freckled, like, no, I look like a Spaniard to get to, you know, and and that was my beginnings in Florida elementary school. And it didn't, it didn't really fare well, I have to tell you. I, I got picked on. I was like that little weirdo Canadian pseudo-European kid. Um, and it didn't fare too well. So, uh, um, you know, so anyways, we went to military school and all this, that. Uh, but really what officially kind of dragged me, and, I, and all this time in Florida, I, I grew up working at my parents' restaurants, like I was telling you. But... Uh, when officially I left for like a hiatus for two, three years, you know, when I was 17, let's call it the, about 20, I um, was getting in trouble. But uh, when 20, my grandfather got diagnosed with lung cancer in Montreal. And my grandfather was everything to me. He was like the everything. He was a big restaurateur. He taught me all, all sorts of amazing things, obviously. And he is, you know, dear to my heart. Um, so I got a phone call from my parents and they said, hey, like, listen, this is the situation. We need you to come back and take care of the restaurant while we go to Montreal to take care of your grandfather for the remaining year of his life because he was diagnosed. He had about a year left. And uh, that kind of shook me straight a little bit. I, I uh, you know, not entirely. I, I still get in plenty of trouble, but but I, I decided to go back to my parents' restaurant uh, that I grew up cooking in, which is a fine dining Spanish restaurant. And uh, they basically gave me the keys and said, listen, you just got to make this happen for the next year and a half. And I did, I, I, I uh, you know, cooking came kind of natural to me. And uh, I did all the right and wrong things in, in, in the cooking world, because in Florida, uh, you know, you learn how to, you know, throw ice cubes uh, on the flat top to get the chicken to cook faster, for instance, with a, and put a bowl on top, right? Like all those little like hacks that aren't really great. Right. I learned those 
as well as like learning all the mother sauces and this and that. So anyways, I was running my parents' restaurant for a couple of years um, because my grandfather didn't pass away as soon as they thought he was. And uh, there was a moment when my family came back to the restaurant about a year later um, and uh, they saw the restaurant running well. Uh, I was, you know, a, a little OCD. So I had cleaned up the, I kind of cleaned up the whole kitchen. I, I had my different things I was doing. I had specials. Uh, my mother took notice, which she, she's the matriarch of our family and the chef. And uh, said, listen, she scored a deal. She made a deal with me. She's like, I'll send you to a, to any, I'll send you to the best culinary school in the world if you dedicate, if you show me you can dedicate yourself for for one more year. And listen, I didn't have anything going on, um, and uh, I I did it. I I kind of just you know did another year in my family's restaurant. Uh, they said, listen, you know, we'll send you to to any culinary school. I I visited a couple culinary schools, and I eventually ended up going to the one in uh, High Park, the CIA. Culinary Institute of America. So uh, uh, that's the one I picked. And, and that's, that's a little bit where I got a little bit more of my confidence that I was worth something in life. So. And it's interesting at that point, when you went to school, there was still a requirement or a mandate that you had to have previous experience. Right? Yes. At that, at that point, they weren't just uh, accepting high school students uh, right out of, uh, or, or out of elementary or whatever. They, they accept anybody at this point. Right. But, but yeah, so yeah, you still had to have like a certain amount of experience. You know, I wrote that nice little letter that you're supposed to write about getting accepted. I gave my background. Um, and, then, but you know what, Chris, as I remember back when you asked me this, I think I was at the precipice of when they were working out of having to have that year experience right because what i do remember on some of my classes is i was in class with people that had never had any culinary background uh career changers uh from doctors or lawyers people that were just taking it up as a hobby uh for instance or you know or and very green people and and what i was alluding to like what gave me my confidence was is that i entered this society this school the culinary arts and I knew what the fucking mother sauces were, right? I knew how to make a velouté and a bechamel. I knew how to cut a potato and, you know, matchsticks. And, you know, I knew all the French techniques. I had learned them. I had practiced them my whole life. So that kind of got me looking a little bit left and right. I was like, oh, shit, like, I, there might be hope for you, Spike. Like, you might be, you might be able to do something here, right? <laughs> like, uh, because I was just baffled that, like, these former lawyer doctors or people didn't know what I knew. Right. And, um, and that's kind of what gave that's me actually, a little, I think that's actually a really interesting point you just made there because a lot of folks look and say, Oh, they're a doctor and they're an attorney, right? They're smarter than me. They know more than me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just a different, yeah, they're, yes, they're great at law and they may be great at performing surgery or telling you what's wrong with you, but culinarily they're at the, they're just at the, the low, they're at the, at bottom. the bottom. It doesn't the mean bottom. they're smarter than you. It's just a different. And and I think a lot of us have that knack for thinking that, right? Like, oh, yeah, smarter than me is an attorney. No, they're just smart in something else. Exactly. And I think it just comes from like a little bit of that, like grow up and be a lawyer or grow up and, and my son's going to grow up and be a doctor or whatever it is. It's always like that, that one you know, that, that one career choice that makes it feel like those people are smarter or well-versed in the world. But, and we could get to this a little later, but I actually think 
chefs in totality are much more equipped to take on the world uh, and, and, and being fathers, being parents, actually, as well, better than most other career choices. I, I feel like if there's any career that could prepare you for the nurturing that you need to bring to a human being or life form and how to work with your hands. And I think it's, I think it's the culinary arts, to be honest with you. And, and maybe a lot of different arts as well, but I, I, I just think about, you know, have to make that game time decision in restaurants, right. Or, or, you know, or those really, or how to pivot so quickly and, and things of that sort and how to nurture a team and be part of a subculture. I think all those came, came twofold later on in my life. And I look at it, I was like, Oh man, that really prepared me for everything that I'm doing right now. You know? So, um, yeah. So yeah, culinary, culinary school. So it's like, are you AD? Are you ADD? Uh, my, if you ask my wife, she would say, yes, I, I, I have, I'm not, uh, I, I've never been diagnosed. It's funny you bring this up because we literally just had this conversation two nights ago. Um, because like, you know, like I smoke, I smoke weed, I smoke pot. I, I enjoy it. It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a great plant. It's served me well. Uh, but recently one of my new year's resolutions was, was no, no marijuana before 7 PM. And uh, you have to understand, you know, I'm a Montreal kid, Chris. Like I grew up like with plants in my front yard, in my in my front yard. You know, like marijuana is is just a, you know, it's it's not it's not a, it just wasn't a thing, right? It was just like normal. Um, so I've smoked my entire life, like all day, every day, for 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 many years. Uh, and uh, and recently I've. Um, stop smoking in the mornings and the afternoons and and um i my mind it, it like i told my wife yesterday it was sunday and i was like man i just don't feel accomplished today at all and and, and she's like well you woke up at 8 a.m you took ace to hockey you did you went to mixed martial arts in the afternoon she's like you pretty much did a lot i was like i was like there's a hundred things going in my mind so i i would say yeah i'm probably undiagnosed ADHD. <laughs> It's, it's pretty funny because a lot of people, a lot of us in our industry are right. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you just said a minute ago was that a la minute, last yeah. minute, the ability to solve problems at a moment's notice. Cause that's ultimately what we are. We're problem solvers as well yes. as craftspeople. Right. And, yeah. and we're fixing and having solutions to things and training the next generation to have those solutions as they're continuing to move forward. Right. Don't yeah. dwell on the mistake learn from it, move forward to the next thing. Because if you dwell on that all day, you're, the rest of what you're making is going to be screwed up too. Me, totally cloudy. You're going to cloud yeah. yourself. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting point. You know, it's like, and I, you know, I'm as ADD as it comes, not like that's a surprise to you. I mean, we yeah. know each other for yeah. a long time. Squirrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> shark, shark, shark. Another shark, another shark. Oh, God, don't even start about that one. Um, dude, that shark was close to us. A lot closer than I realized. You were the one telling me and I wasn't hearing <laughs> very close by the way people listening don't be the first one to jump in water in, in uncharted territory especially when there's like a massive cage of bait waiting down there oh. for you to you know <laughs> so to preface this spike and i were in hawaii and we, were, we had the amazing opportunity to go swim with the hawaiian kompachi farm and in their farm right so we <laughs> We jump off the boat and there's this 10 story netting 
um, that goes, God, 10 stories deep and there's so much yeah. super clean and super beautiful. There's only three stories worth of fish in a 10 story you know, netting. And they didn't want us to swim around the backside of the net. But of course, you know, we don't pay attention. We're just Spike and I are swimming. Yeah. <laughs> and that turned into yelling, people yelling at us, turn around. Later that night, I received a text video of what was it like a 15 foot tiger shark? Like right. Huge. Behind, right oh, behind yeah. me. And Spike at that point was already on the boat pointing, going, get out of the water. And I'm like, dude, this is awesome. Cause I was looking at the <laughs> fish, not realizing what was behind me. <laughs> uh, that, was uh, that was awesome. Awesome trip. Awesome. Awesome. Trip. So culinary school is over. What is that first like first job like out of college did you go back to florida or did you stay in new york like what was your thing uh well um two-part thing so you as you know there's like an externship halfway through the year you have to do yep right in culinary school at well at the caa at least which basically for those who are listening you have to go work somewhere right and um and listen i was in my inspired state at that point in school so I applied to go work in the north of France. So a uh, quick quick little tidbit story. My mom, I get a lot of my passion for food from my mother. She's an amazing chef, restaurateur herself. She's owned restaurants. She still owns restaurants. Uh, it's a huge family business. But uh, growing up, I grew up in, in the kitchen of my mother's uh, house were all these amazing menus um, from three Michelin star restaurants from around the world that she had visited. And one of the restaurants and menus that she mostly always kind of paid attention to was this uh, place called Les Créères, right? Which means chalk caves. And Les Créères was a chateau in the north of France in, uh, in Champagne country uh, that had three Michelin stars uh, and, you know, had, a, a you know, champagne caves all over it. And uh, the chef uh, had three Michelins for about 20 years and his name was Gerard Boyer. And she had broke their my parents' car on their honeymoon had broken down and they ended up at the chateau and the chef and the wife were just so welcoming. They had 19 rooms and it was just like this memorable experience for her. And she always told me, she's like, if you grow up to be a chef, you're going to have to go train here with Gerard Boyer. And that was like a constant thing in my life growing up, right? Even when I didn't give a shit about cooking, right? I was like, uh-uh. And um, so I went to the externship sites at the CIA, right? Because they have to be approved. And lo and behold, I saw that one person years ago had gotten Lake Carrier externship site approved for, for externship. It had kind of expired. So what I did is I set out to do my externship in the north of France. And I basically every morning, uh, you know, during the search of for, for this externship, I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and call the chateau in the kitchen. I, I got the, the, the kitchen phone. And I, I would say, uh, you know, you know, Mr. Mendelson, the American, I want to get accepted. And most often I would get just hung up on, right? And be like, oh, we don't accept uh, students from America. Click, right? And every week, you know, I would wake up at three, four o'clock in the morning. I would call the kitchen. I would please ask him. So about seven months of that, right? I was about a month left before I had to secure an externship. I, he finally accepted me. He, he basically said on the phone, he's like, Putain! which means shit, just stop calling us. I'll send you the acceptance letter. Right? So, <laughs> persistence. Persistence, yeah. 
And, uh, and I always use it as an example when I tell culinary students to be persistent uh, or people that are looking to be in the industry. It's one of my stories of persistence that paved the rest of my life for me, right? Uh, because I did secure that externship in France and uh, you're only supposed to go for six months. I, I didn't come back to school for a year and a half, right? So I got shipped out to France. I got to work. Uh, I was the only American, well, I'm Canadian, but they thought I was American, uh, kid in about a 60-person brigade, right, uh, of all Frenchies. And man, did they just give it to me, right? Like I, oh, yeah. I, I, I was mopping. I was on stocks. I was plucking feathers. I got stuff thrown at me. I got called l'américain. They never even called me by my name. Uh, and all that was pretty rigorous for like the first three months of my externship over there. They want to break um, you. They want to see if they, you're going to make it. Yes, they wanted to break me. And, and there was moments I kind of broke a little bit, but overall my passion for the food and my interest in the cuisine kind of superseded any other thoughts that they had about me. And they really accepted me. And, and that was the, the best case scenario for me because what happened was is I didn't return to culinary school. I, I worked my way all up to Saucier at that Gerard Boyer's place, and I got a really great classical French training, uh, you know, and reading the Jacques Pepin books growing up, reading even Anthony Bourdain's books or Cyril Mascioni's books, which I'm sure you have all those books on your shelves. <laughs> you know, growing up, one of the things back in the day was like, you want to learn the cuisine, go to that country and, yep. and, and go immerse yourself in the food and, and the culture. And, and, and that was like, to me, the only thing I, I could do to get to the next level. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I went to, I went there and I had a fantastic time. I wrote a massive thesis book about my experience and all the recipes and crazy. And then finally I returned to culinary school. The, the CIA was nice enough to accept me back because really I was, I was, I was supposed to, I was supposed to return after my three months, right? Um, but they uh, put me in another class and I graduated. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of how I, you know, culinary school and into the real world. And, and then to answer your question. So at that time, uh, my first job out of culinary school, uh, was really for, uh, with Michael Simon. I was Michael Simon's butcher at Perea. I think it was his name in, in New York when he had a restaurant. Yep, and that uh, was with Jonathan Sawyer, correct? And that and that was with Jonathan Sawyer, yeah, and Brian Goodman. Yep, yeah, Brian Goodman and Jonathan Sawyer, and so I was their butcher. Their, I was their opening butcher in the morning. So I I would come in there and I would do all fabrication of fish and meat for them and set them set them good for the day. And then my night job was a uh, poissonnier at uh, Le Cirque, uh, the new Le Cirque that was opening up in um, the Bloomberg building. Uh, so, you know, uh, to cut a, you know, just give you another little tidbit. So Gerard Boyer and Siri Mascioni were best friends. So, and the creme brulee was actually born a, a little in, at, the, at, the, at the chateau that I worked at and Siri Mascioni replicated it. So Siri's sons were trained at the front of the house at Gerard Boyer at Lake Carrere, which is what got me my uh my job at at le cirque at the in the bloomberg building so marco mascioni is the one that gave me my job at, at, at le cirque I, I was like called him up and i said yeah we're opening up and you can be part of the team so uh we worked under pierre chadlin at the time was the chef there which is now works for ducasse 
but but yeah, so Pierre Chadlet was uh, the chef at Le Cirque, which he was also Martha Stewart's private chef for, for years. So, uh, but no yeah, schlep. those were, the, <laughs> what? No schlep, no schlep. not at all. No, no schlep, not a no schlep, schlep whatsoever. But I just, no I want to point out that something like you would work doubles, right? You would get up in the morning, you would butcher for one restaurant and then go yes. work service at another. Yeah, a hundred percent. I would do that on top of, on any free time that I ever had. I would pick up a stage in the city and the way I worked my stages, even at culinary school, I was doing this, but even after I graduated and continuing it, I had figured out who was serving the best family meals. Cause I was dirt poor. We were all dirt poor, right? I mean, we didn't have any money to spend. Yep. Um, and, and so I would, I would figure out my days off with who had the best meal. So one of, one of the best, the best was La Bernadette. So on Tuesday nights, they had a pizza night there. And on Thursday they had, a Mexican night. So I would make sure like if I ever had a day off or whatever, I would work around just being like an extra at, at that restaurant. And there's a few more in, in the lineup, but, but, uh, but then this way I would get fed and I would also be able to, to like hone my skills even more. But to your point, yeah, we, that's what, that's what it took back then. Like you really, you really two jobs and, 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 soak up everything that you can learn. Like when you're staging at a restaurant, like you're, maybe you're up against the wall, but you have your eyes. Right. And if the guy's like, you know, doing a, you know, a, a nice uh, paprika lobster sauce and chinois, you're picking up techniques and writing things down and, and all that kind of stuff. So. I think that's, that's a really, really important part. I think of our growing up in this industry was volunteering to work because you wanted yeah. to get, and it wasn't always about, getting paid it was the payment was our education right like, yes and and i'm gonna this is this was for a long time a big issue uh it wasn't a big issue it was just like how many vacations did you take were you based around where you could stage on a trip all of them exactly <laughs> every every single every trip every single every i mean everything even my, like i was even saying down to the meals i could have at night where it's like oh Liberty's taco night. I'm I'm going to work there tonight, you know, because I'm going to get a free meal. Yeah, you know, so that's what it was, you know. That and it's so funny because Jennifer Carroll, which I know you know as well, yeah, uh, and Eric Repair, when I had them in a room together once, and we were talking Liberty Den, and I just like ripped off a bunch of dishes that they used to do back in the day, and they were they both kind of looked at me and they're like, "Did you work at Liberty Den?" I was like, "No, I never worked. I never really worked there." but I would stage there and, and they were like, really? I was like, and they're like, I was like, yeah, I was like, I staged there a ton at which point I would learn all your dishes. So like the monkfish with the paprika sauce, like, you know, and like, and they're like, wow. Like they were, they were just like, what? Like, we don't even know who you are. And you work like you, you know, how do you know all these, like these nuances of the menu, like that we had like seven, eight years ago. I was like, that's because I would stage there. I, I would go stage there. So. And it's amazing to think about how much knowledge we would absorb traveling to these places and working at these restaurants. I mean, and I'm sure you have the same thing, which is every notebook from every place you ever worked. Yes. Yes. And this is like, and I say this all the time, you go out to eat, you have a notebook in your pocket, you're drawing pictures, you're writing shit down, you're stealing menus or asking if you can take them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And station diagrams like how somebody would set up their station in another restaurant because maybe a little bit more efficient than where you were everything was about absorbing knowledge and that was your payment yeah that, that that's a snuff meal 
Yeah, exactly. That and staff meal was payment. And, and you're right. I mean, like, you know, uh, never not have a notebook, never not jot things down. Like, and, um, and one day, Chris, I'll show you the book that I did from France. I think it'll be like, what the fuck? But like all, all I had, all I could do in the North of France was go to work and then internet cafe. That's the only things I had to do. And I would smoke hash and I would like OC, you know, OCD, record every single I would review every single part of my day I would record every single part of my day on the computer in the internet cafe and then I eventually I published this huge this huge book uh you know of well I didn't publish I mean I it was my own personal book of you know all the recipes every ingredient and then like a little excerpt on like why I thought this was so important. Uh, and later in life, Chris, that book actually allowed me to score, um, you know, I, I think I told you a little about this. I, I was a producer on the Inn in Little Washington. Um, you know, I did a documentary on Patrick O'Connell and literally what actually scored me the opportunity to do that was this book that I had done. And I, I had showed the producers in New York. I was like, listen, you don't understand like this was what you had to do. Like, this is the stage. Like, this is, this is what happens in the Brigad system. And I took him through the book and I was like, and this is still happening in Virginia and no one's talking about it enough, right? And that's kind of how I introduced them to Patrick O'Connell, at which point he was like, I'm ready to do a documentary and let people in on, on what I do here. So, um, but anyways, it's just funny how those things work in life, so. So you're, you're now New York. What comes after you know, Perea and, and, and working at Le Cirque. what comes next? What's the next? Yeah. So, so what comes next is, so, um, so while I was at culinary school, I, you know, I was, uh, the head of the global whatever club and, and, uh, and I was reading Anthony Bourdain's books, right. About Vietnam and Vietnamese cuisine and, uh, and get really getting inspired by, by, you know, you know, Again, that he, he kind of describes our, our world as a subculture. And I always loved that he described the restaurant world as a subculture because I really felt part of that subculture from a kid, right? So it, it's similar to, I think that's a really, it's the land of misfit toys, right? Yeah. The last yeah. bastion of pirates left. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I, and I don't say that in a mean or a bad way. I no. mean, in a great way. Yeah. Because from that comes creativity. From that comes diversity. And what that creates is a cohesive team of everybody working together to create beautiful things, right? Yeah. Whether it be different cultures all coming together and really blending to make the food even better. And I think that's, Tony was our eyes into the rest of the world. Yes. And to, to go right off of that quote, so once he came out with his Vietnam book and he expressed his love of Vietnamese food and he had also... Uh, educated us on how the French had left so much of their uh, influence on Vietnamese food, right? And we, you know this because you, you know you're a chef. Maybe most people don't know that like pho was derived from pot au feu, right? Banh mi sandwiches, the French is taught them how to make pates and bake bread. Uh, Vietnamese turmeric crepes. Well, I'll tell you this: the Vietnamese weren't making crepes until they were conquered by the French, right? So. The influence of French cuisine and techniques on the Vietnamese cuisine was very evident. Uh, and I took a liking to that. So during school, I wanted to do the same thing that Anthony did. I wanted to travel to Vietnam. And I had uh, 
in Cuisines of Asia with Mark, uh, Michael Pardis was my chef. He had linked me with a Vietnamese chef in New York City to go work at on the weekends. His name was Michael Bao. They call him the architect chef. Crazy chef. My mentor, but a fucking crazy guy, right? Uh, he's probably he's probably not let back in the United States now. He's probably like wanted in, in, in New York for so much, right? But uh, so at that time, Michael Bao, myself, and a bunch of students, we organized these uh, fusion dinners where we invite another chef uh, to come cook, fuse Vietnamese food with Chinese, German Vietnamese food, and so forth. And what we did is we raised money for 10 celebrity chefs and 10 students to go to Vietnam for 10 days, right? And that was one of the most exper crazy experiences at culinary school because it opened my, my eyes and my pal up to a whole different cuisine that I wasn't you know, aware of. So when I was working at Siri Mascioni's, uh, Pierre, unfortunately, we had only gotten two stars from the New York Times and there was a changing of the guard happening in the kitchen, right, a lot. And Michael Bao, the guy that I had done those tasting dinners with uh, to, to do that trip at, uh, reached out to me. He goes, hey, I'm opening up a Vietnamese restaurant with Drew Nipperon. He's like, will you come, will you come with me? And I, you know, looked, you know, thought about it for a little bit. I was like, man, I've worked real hard to work to be at Le Cirque. Uh, but things weren't really going awesome there, right? The, there's a little bit of hierarchy problem, uh, issues that I wasn't down with. So I actually asked three of my friends that were cooking with me at the circuit if they would jump ship and uh, come open up this Vietnamese restaurant with me. Uh, and one of them was Michael Coletti, which you met, by the way, yep. right, on, in Hawaii. And he still remains my right-hand man as I am his right-hand man. We've, we've grown in the industry together. But I basically brought in a banh mi sandwich at Le Cirque for lunch one day and I, I gave it to him and he took a bite and he looked at me and he's like, whoa. He's like, this is amazing. I was like, if you want to learn more of that food, come with me. And next day we all put our resignations in, about three of us at Pierre and he was like fucking totally pissed, obviously. Uh, and we went to go work with Drew Nipperon um, and to open up our first Vietnamese restaurant in New York City together. So that's, that's how I left Le Cirque uh, and I joined Drew and that was an awesome experience because Drew is, is Drew. We all, you know, you know, Drew and I know Drew and, and, uh, don't I hose had, me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm seeing him, I'm actually seeing him Wednesday in the city, but, but, uh, I'm excited to kind of connect back with him. But, but, uh, yeah, so working with Drew was a whole fucking thing, uh, an experience. Um, and what I loved about it is, it took me a little bit out of my back of the house chef hat and gave me a nice dose of restaurateur management, right? And where I got to be in Drew's office most days, be part of the meetings. And I got to learn a little bit more from his perspective, what it takes to, to be amazing in, in this business and, and run proper restaurants. So yeah, so we, we uh, you know, I opened up that Vietnamese restaurant. We opened about three, four other Vietnamese restaurants in the city as well. Uh, during that time, uh, we got two stars from the New York Times, which was awesome for us. It was an amazing article. Uh, it was my first actual, you know, being part of my own review process. Um, and then shortly, uh, you know, after two, three years of that, the uh, 2008, the recession hit. Right. So and, you know, I don't know if you, you know, I'm sure you remember in 2008, recession hit. Lots of restaurants closed and. Yep. Uh, you know, it was 
it was kind of a signal it's time to move on and, and, and look at doing something different. And um, uh, during that time, that last year before I kind of left officially, uh, Drew was, and I'll, I have to always give it up to him, um, because this is very much against his character, uh, he allowed me and paid me. This is very important. I want to say this for the record. He paid me while I went and did Top Chef. You know, and uh, and I, you know, and if he hadn't said, I'll pay you while you're gone to do this, um, you know, I probably would have never done Top Chef and, and I wouldn't have entered my, the next part of my life and of, of what everything that that brought to me, right? So, um, yeah, so so I, I, I went and did Top Chef, you know, while I was working at my house in, in Tribeca and um, had a great showing on the show and everything went well. and got back to the restaurant, kind of hung out there for another six to eight months. And then that kind of fizzled out. And then I was, I, I, you know, I was onto my next thing. So. And it went, you know, and that's huge, right? Drew is for folks who don't know Drew Neimport, he is iconic. He started with Montrachet and then came Tribeca Grill and Nobu and multiple other, I, I mean, I opened the coach house with him in Martha's Vineyard, you know, Drew is, yeah, I worked at Rubicon in San Francisco, which was a Drew Neimport restaurant, which was owned by De Niro and Robin Williams, who um, yes, you know, like the jelly I, the, with the jellyfish. Uh, yes, uh, the, life, right? the chihuly the chandeliers. The chihuly yeah, chandeliers. Those, yeah, it was an iconic. And Drew built iconic restaurants. Um, his presence was felt in every aspect of it. And and for those of you who haven't looked him up please do because he is a force awesome. to reckon with still in the business. Yeah, and he, ha and he has this like poster, which I'm sure you've seen that he used to ha have like at the front window of his office of all the chefs that used oh, to yeah, work for him. Oh yeah, the family tree, the family tree. The family tree and like where, awesome. they, and where they are now. Yeah, and like he's, and you know, he's given a lot to the industry and a lot to individuals as well. So yeah. Great man. And so what was that transition like? You know, you're on television, you can't walk down the street after that. Let's be yeah, honest. yeah. So uh, a little bit. So it, it, I'd say for a while it was like that. You know. So uh, I had never done any television, anything in, in the past. I I I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, the reason I did it is I was burning. It's going to sound foolish, but I think you'll understand. I was burning out of the industry at twenty three, and a lot of people are just getting into the industry at 23, right? But they don't have the intense background of being from a Greek family business from Montreal to Spain to working, you know, like to, to just doing like all the stuff I was doing. So I was a little burnt out and um, I wanted to do something that was a little bit exciting, uh, somewhat competitive, although I, I'm not that competitive guy really. And Top Chef was the answer. Uh, and I had seen my buddy Marcel do one season and at first I was like a little worried about the show. I didn't know how, like it wasn't really legitimized. Uh, but then by season two and three, you started to see like Eric Repair as a judge, Daniel Ballou. And, and, and so that at that point I, I decided to, to apply. I applied twice. I applied for season three actually. And they flew me, did all the interviews, did all the sequestering. Uh, and then they emailed me that I didn't make the show at which point I emailed Andy Cohen. You can ask him about this. I hate email. 
I said, your show's going to go up in flames. You, you, took, you, you, you made the wrong choice by, by skipping me. And then I sent it and he never replied back. But six and a half months later, he replied back to that email saying, hey, Spike, I loved your submission videos. And it would be nice to have you reapply for season four. And I was like, oh, I was, I was so embarrassed because I was like, oh, I was such a dick on the email. I was just like, oh, fuck you. Your show's going up in flames. Da, 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 da. And uh, but he was uh, he was nice enough. I mean, my submission videos were fun. Like I went to Chinatown and I, you know, filleted a Chilean 400 pound Chilean sea bass with a samurai sword. And I had my buddy throw watermelons at me and I was fruit ninjing it. And, you know, I wrestled an, I wrestled an eel on video to fabricate an eel. Like I did all these crazy stuff in my submission videos. So uh, I think he took notice. And, uh, and anyways, they cast me for Top Chef 4. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Persistence. If there's nothing exactly. you get from this, I, think, this, I mean, yeah. but that also goes to say, folks, like, you know, remember it's a very small world out there in the culinary world, in the television industry. Do not pee in the bowl of Cheerios because it will That's take true. that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Some people will remember. Yeah. And I'm just as guilty. I've done it myself. I've done, yeah. I've pissed off many a people in my life. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm still making penance for a lot of it. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all we all make mistakes, and the question is, is how do we grow from them, right? So yeah. now, I mean, you know, you and I cross paths everywhere, right? We cross paths. Yeah, at, we've crossed paths at events. You know, we're always seeing each other doing doing events, and but like now, you're doing something that I think is really, really unique. You know, you yeah. you started a plant based um, fast food concept. I would I mean fast yes. casual, fast casual, fast food. No, fast food. It's fast food. Okay. Um, well, well, I mean, so, so you really quick, just to answer your question, because I don't think I actually answered it. So after Top Chef, I, it, it, a lot of it went to my head. Okay. So I didn't know how to deal with celebrityness. Uh, I didn't know how to, you know, I was making cool money, these gigs, people, I was getting fly, flown all over the place. Um, at that time, you know, my, you know, my, my family background, all my family was in DC and my sister had reached out. Uh, because she's, you know, a huge supporter of mine in my entire career. And, and is the reason I went into Top Chef was mostly because of her. Uh, she said, hey, listen, why don't you come back to D.C. and let's like figure out all this marketing and PR momentum and see if we could use it to our advantage. And at the time on Capitol Hill, there was zero restaurants. Um, the recession had hit. Right. And my parents were driving us fucking crazy because they retired a few years ago and they would just show up at our doorsteps everywhere. So my sister and I devised a plan to get them back into work and back into the restaurant business. So, 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 so basically good stuff eatery was born. Uh, and it was, you know, a fast casual concept with, uh, the, for the better for you burger sector uh, it, we did call it fast casual then. Um, and, uh, we opened up good stuff eatery and it was a smashing success. My, my sister had a marketing background, so she marketed the hell out of top chef. We did all the things you weren't supposed to with the name, by the way, top chef. You just put it on billboards, put it on signs, put it everywhere we were. And we really marketed the success of Bravo and top chef with good stuff eatery. And, you know, here we are 15 years later and that restaurant's still open and there's a, a bunch open, but we really started the fast casual sector of our career. So we opened up Good Stuff Eatery, We the Pizza. 
I opened a bistro. Uh, you know, I opened a bistro because uh, what was it? Right after right after culinary school, right before Syria. Actually, I forgot to tell you. I went to go work for Thomas Keller and Bouchon for about a year and a half, and I love that restaurant. I love that cuisine. I always into French, so I uh, you know I was at a point where. I was getting a little frustrated. My ego was a little bit ahead of me where I started to be known as the burger guy or the pizza guy, the pizza chef or the burger chef. And, and it was starting to kind of eke at me a little bit because I had all this formal French training and this and that. So we went and opened up uh, a, a restaurant called Le Ber uh, Bernays on Capitol Hill. And all our restaurants were next to each other. So it was Good Stuff Eatery, We the Pizza, and Bernays. And, um, Bernays was an amazing restaurant and it was one of my favorite restaurants till, still to this day. It lasted for about five years. Uh, but what we had figured out is that for all the hard work, and it's funny because we just saw uh, what Noma just said, right? We just read the article about the closure of that epic restaurant. You know, all the hard work I was putting into my fine dining bistro, the profits at Be The Pizza and Good Stuff were just far exceeding anything I was capable of producing out of the bistro so it was basically more about a, a passion project and we were you know making money but it wasn't anything crazy so long story short we decided to close Bernays because I was just kind of spread out too thin and, and my heart wasn't in it anymore um, and then anyways we took that location and opened up a taqueria in its place and that's kind of stayed consistent for a number of years at which point I started uh, you know, my ego started coming back down and I started thinking about more on how to become an entrepreneur and a business person. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I want to talk about this ego thing because I think it's a really, really good conversation piece. Yeah. I had a conversation with a young culinarian who was working at a pizza restaurant. He yeah. said he was bored. How many times you hear that, right? Yeah. I'm bored. I need to learn more. Yeah. I said, what is the weight of the dough balls i don't know what's the hydration mm. level on the on the on the dough i don't mm. know what kind of flour yeah. are you i don't know are you using a starter or are you using yeast i, I don't know mm. you know poolish i don't know like yeah. <laughs> i think, I think that's what, what you talk, what you're talking about is really really key right there's a point of what we do where there is a there's, you need a little bit of an ego to push yourself, to drive yourself to be better at what you do, but also recognizing that I'm making a pizza. I'm going to make the best fucking pizza in the world, the best pizza I know how, and I'm going to continuously work towards being better at making that. I'm making a burger. My goal is to make the best burger. I want someone to go, oh my God, this is the best burger. And I think that is a hard thing for a lot of young culinarians to grasp that concept yeah. of, of being make it the best you can no matter what it is whether it's a bowl of oatmeal whether it's a hamburger whether it's a pizza whether it's a salad properly dressed that step has been i'm, I'm hoping i'm hoping that yeah. it, it it is not a step that's being missed because every bite that someone takes it's important to that individual right we're there serving the community the guest we want to make them smile, whether it's a hamburger, a pizza, a salad, or a, a you know, anything. Yeah. yeah. That is a hard thing for people to choke down when you have that classic formal training. 
Yes, it, it is a very hard thing. Um, and it's an interesting point you bring up because, you know, I'm guilty of saying I'm bored a little bit too at times, right, uh, throughout my life. Um, and and I talk about my ego because, listen, I, I was exposed to all this celebrity life that I didn't know was coming. You know, I just went to go cook on a show because I, w I was actually, you know, strung out of working in the business so long. Like, that's what it was. It, it wasn't even boredom. I was just like, oh, like, I got to. I got to take a breather and that's what top chef gave to me. Um, and then, you know, and then I started having a really big head about, you know, because we were doing so good in, with, in DC, I was getting all these articles. We were good stuff eatery. It was everywhere. We, the pizza, we were like, you know, cooking at, you know, the president Obama was coming to my restaurants, like, you know, once every couple of weeks and with his daughters, uh, you know, we're drinking our milkshakes, you know, every, you know, every month, you know, for instance, I went to go cook at the white house and, you know, I started, you know, and I'm not like this, but I, I guess I was portraying that it was all about me a little bit, right? And I'm in the family restaurant business, and that was, you know, kind of banging up with my family a little bit, right? Where, like, I was out here getting all this credit, all these articles, but really the back of the house, if I hadn't had my parents or my sister or all the employees or the Mike Coletti and the Brian LaKyle, like my two, my two guys that have been with me forever, if I didn't have that set, you know, um, I would have never been able to become what I was becoming. And, you know, those things weren't a lot. I wasn't, I wasn't properly figuring out how those two worlds live together. Right. And, um, and so it, it came to a point where I was kind of pushing people away a little bit. Right. Uh, you know, my family a little bit, or even my friends and, um, and it took a little bit rejiggering and really looking at myself and being like, dude, like, what are like, who the fuck do you think you are kind of kind of question right like where are you what are you doing and uh and it's humbling when you have to really look at yourself right and how you're portraying yourself or and how other people are starting to portray you and you have to work on that man that's something to take on right that's that's like a that's like an intense moment that you're having for yourself because you've already done the damage but now you got to go repair it right and and um so there was a little bit of that and Part of that repairing, uh, I again, I, ha I have to owe it to my sister here because, you know, it wasn't that I was bored, but she started getting me involved in community outreach, right? Um, I started getting involved with like after school kids, you know, that didn't have a place to go. You know, we would invite them to the restaurant. I would teach them how to cook or make dough or do those things. And I, I started to, to kind of have this massive give back to the community that had supported my restaurants to the people that were spending money, you know, at my restaurant. I'll tell you, it was a real, like my ego was getting real big. I, I basically, you know, I, this was an article that this, uh, I forgot who I published it, but, but it was like, you know, my face was on uh, the Washington post of getting chef Spike, celebrity chef Spike Mendelson gets, uh, gets, uh, uh, what was it? I got kicked out of my apartment. What is it called? Uh, when you get like uh, evicted, evicted. So it was a huge article about Spike Mendelson gets evicted. How can he not afford to pay his rent or something like that? And I was just like, and I wasn't, I didn't even get evicted. I was living with my girlfriend and my two buddies are the ones that got, got evicted really because I signed the lease for them. You know, you sign a lease for your, for your cooks. Yeah. I did the same. I did the same. But so there was like this shift that was happening that I had to kind of rejigger myself a little bit and the way I approached, you know, this career and, uh, so by the outreach of the community, I started getting into much more policy, 
you know, because it was DC and I started, you know, learning about that. And, and, um, and that's eventually kind of what led me to the plant-based movement that I'm in right now. So, so let's, I mean, and I think that's really, really important to talk about, like, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror and, you know, dealing with the demons, dealing with the, you know, the skeletons in the closet and, and, and owning up for your shit, right? Like, you know, how it's not easy to look somebody in the face and say, Hey man, I'm sorry. I was a dick. You know, I was not a good person. I screwed up. I'm going to own this. And I owe you a bigger, bigger than just an apology. I owe you more than that. And I think that's a hard thing. I mean, I've had to do it. It's not, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to do. And it's a hard thing to do to the closest people that you're to your family and your friends that it's even harder, you know, like strangers or, you know, there's that, but like, when you could see that you've really done damage and you have to really fight inside. And by the way, like you just said it, the apology out with your words is not enough. It's actually the action. Yeah. You have to wake up every day and actually work on it and be like, okay, how can I rededicate myself? How can I show people that I'm not that person that, you know, uh, you know, that, that just poisoned by celebrityness or what, what have you, I have to really put in the hard work to do it. And it took some time and it, it took, you know, even stepping away from the businesses uh, and doing my own thing a little bit, right. Uh, just to kind of, to get there. And, um, but listen, like, uh, you know, we all have to kind of go through it. And, and I think it's, it was the the best thing for me in the long run. So. So let's, let's talk a little bit about eat the change and, and what you're doing yes. because you're doing some, like, it's really yeah. fun, right? Like, look, yeah. we had a blast in Hawaii. We were cooking just really, really getting immersed, not only in what the Hawaiian cuisine and the islands have to offer you because we can only work with island product, which to me is like the best part of doing that. Trip, best part. Yeah. Right. Being able to to actually swim with Kona Kampat, like Hawaiian Kampachi, just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. So what, what made you say, I'm going to do, because you still eat meat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you not not this month because it's January. Just for the record, everybody. January. <laughs> sorry, I'm not eating month in January. No, but I still I still eat meat, and um, you know, but so yeah, so uh, I met my wife, which is vegan, right, Co- Cody, and um, you know, for me to mar- to marry a vegan was a really weird thing to my entire Greek family, right? Like a vegan, you'll bring a vegan into the family, right? And it wasn't like I was bringing a vegan into the family. I was bringing my beautiful wife Cody into into the family, right? And and uh, so, but it um, you know, it was really I was one of the chefs that kind of scoffed, you know, if you came into my restaurants and were asking for something off menu, vegan or vegetarian or something like that, I was kind of that asshole chef. At, you know, back in the day, I was like, oh god, here we go again. And uh, you know, once I start to understand a little bit more from being with my wife and and having to go out eat different foods i started to appreciate it a lot more and cody actually specifically had asked me she's like oh man i wish you would just open up like a vegetarian vegan version of good stuff eatery right and that was like always her thing she's like it's she's like your mushroom burger is good but man like we could imagine if it was all plant-based and i always thought that was just like a laughable thing right i was like oh you know like um, but I got introduced to Beyond Meat and Seth Goldman. I was on a, you know, I was on a panel. So, and that's why I, I prefaced like a lot of the community outreach, a lot of the policy work that I started doing. You know, I chaired um, the Food Policy Council on behalf of Mayor Bowser in DC, which is 
legislation just to make our food system work better. So I was actually in government, working with government to make our local food system better. And through all those learnings, I started to understand the need for more plant-based foods in our diets, uh, especially at a younger age. And through all that work, I was able to be on a panel with Seth Goldman, which is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the owner of Honest Tea, right, that produced Honest Tea and also became the, uh, the chair of Beyond Meat. And when I came to the panel, he stuck Honest Tea and Beyond Meat in a cooler under my, uh, you know, under my chair. And he looked at me, he goes, I, I heard you're the Burger King. I'd love to know what you think about this. And in one hand, I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. Burger King slogan again. Uh, but I took the stuff home and I cooked it for my wife and I was blown away, right? I had never seen a product that was not meat, not beef, bleed, have the texture, have the mouthfeel. And a light bulb went off in my head. And I was just like, you know, I was just sitting there. I saw my wife. She was like smiling from ear to ear, right? And and I was like, happy wife, happy life. How do I get more of this in my life, right? How do I do more of this? And I uh, emailed Seth immediately the next morning after I had um, cooked the burgers. And I said, hey, you have a, a, a winning product here. Take it from a guy that's like, you know, been in the burger business for a long time. I, you know, I won Rachel Ray's Burger Bash and all these things. And I was like, I understand burgers. I was like, this thing is, it really has legs. How can I get more involved? How can I learn more? I really think, you know, it's the time to open up a fast food. It was fast food, vegan burger shack, right? And I always, you know, I always define fast food and fast casual. They're two different things, right? And they're, they're really defined by the supply chain that you bring into the restaurant. And that's, that's how I define fast casual and fast food, right? Is the type of supply chain that you align with both of those concepts. Uh, meaning that fast food, you're accepting ingredients, you're cooking it and packaging it, right? Fast casual, it's more craft. You're still accepting ingredients, but you're making your own blends of meat or you're making preparations. Fast food is, you cut the bag and, and yeah, you, so know, you're you talking, get it on there. You're talking fast yeah. casual, raw goods being processed, whereas right. fast, yeah. you know, fast food is pre ready to RTG, as we would say at the restaurant. RTG, you're baby, so, yeah. You're purchasing it. products that are ready to go to be just cooked, and yes. consumer. yes, I'm going to use that. That's exactly the definition, right? That's, that's the difference. So, um, so I had this, this idea, you know, and although I've eaten, I've ate McDonald's, I still do here and there every once in a while, right? Just cause you know, it's just that you got to get that Big Mac. My grandmother took me for like, you know, 10 years to get that Big Mac. I, you know, so, so yeah, got to get the flavor, but, but I, I, I saw, and, and again, like, because you know me, I'm always trying to innovate and see what the next thing is, right? So I saw this moment of like these golden arches, but they weren't arches. They were like something else. And they were this thing called plant burger. And I was like, man, I really want to do this concept. I was like, I know a lot about the burger business, obviously with Good Stuff Eatery. You know, my family is running that business. I'm, I'm kind of able to go on and do my own things right now and, 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 and pay, pay my own way. And, um, and I reached out to Seth and lo and behold, he, he was, you know, not quite ready to open up a restaurant, but what he did do is get me involved with, um, beyond meat a little bit more where I was producing recipes, burger content, and I was just learning about the plant-based movement, right? Beyond meat really let me kind of dive in and see what's out there and, 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 and like, you know, and 
what's does vegan cheese exist? Does uh you know does do can we supplement all these ingredients and they, they all be vegan and um so yeah so I started working with Seth and Ethan uh, which is the CEO of Beyond Meat and I launched their Beyond Meat sausage in Boulder when they, that came to market and I started ingraining myself and then it came to a point where Seth after uh, the IPO Beyond Meat was looking to get back in startup mode. And he had reached out to me and said, hey, I might have an opportunity with Whole Foods to beta test this concept that you pitched me on. At which point I did a burger palooza at Good Stuff Eatery where I invited him in and I cooked everything that we have on the menu at Good Stuff, just supple- but I switched for Beyond Meat. We had a delicious moment together and I said, why don't we try this out? So I, um, you know, um, I linked up with Seth and his family, Jonah Goldman and his son, which is head of marketing, a uh, very inspiring guy. It was, was part of kind of uh, doing this. And we launched in 110 square feet, the first plant burger in Silver Spring, Maryland, inside a Whole Foods. And we were doing $6,000 a square foot, right? And you're like, Whoa, wait a second. $6,000 a square foot. Well, it's a 110 feet kiosk and we're putting volume out of that kiosk. So another light bulb went out. I was like, man, I've been looking at square footage in restaurants the wrong way my entire life, right? Smaller footprints, right? Like what, what have I been doing? So, uh, and then Whole Foods took note as well because they measure everything by square foot. And they're like, who's putting out these numbers, you know, in 110 square feet? And it was us. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's the story of Plantberg and that's how I started getting involved in it. Um, and then the pandemic hit, right? Which was a horrible thing, obviously, but we're, you know, I'm an opportunist. And what happened is that we got really lucky where everyone in the rest of the world was closing their restaurants. Um, Whole Foods hot buffet went out of business, basically out of business overnight. And they were looking for a concept to kind of put in place to revive like the action there because they were, they were essential. So during the pandemic, Whole Foods allowed us to open up nine more locations uh, all up and down the Eastern seaboard. So during COVID we were, we were pounding the pavement with plant burger during COVID. Pounding the pavement. That's it's, it's a crazy, it's amazing, right? You know, you have, you're a restaurant within yeah built so you have a built-in clientele they're coming there they're looking for healthier options it's it's yeah. it's a brilliant move yeah and 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 yeah i mean it, it it it's lucky and brilliant i have to say you know success is a lot of luck by the way right time right place i have to say like there, you could be brilliant you could do all the right things and s- super fail right but but when you see luck hit you right in the face, and this is a Tony Shea quote, by the way, I'll, like in your life, the founder of Zappos, in your life, there'll be many instances when luck hits you right in the face and you don't even realize it. And for the for those that can actually acknowledge what has just happened and, and figure it out, you can have an opportunity of, of, of being really successful. And I think that's kind of what happened to our group where it just hit us in the face. We're like, oh my God, we can open up nine more stores. And guess what? Every item on the plant burger menu you can find on the shelves at Whole Foods, right? So Whole Foods loves that. Like the cheese, the bun, the sauce, the you can find it all. Win. It's a win-win. Yeah, the, so people try it. 
they get a taste, yeah. they enjoy it, then they can replicate it home. Not as, you know, they're going to replicate it to their style at home. They'll fuck it up and then they'll come back and order a burger at our place. But, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, listen, I always tell people you could cook, everybody cook, cooks a, a, a Bubby's burger different, Bubba's burgers differently, right? Like someone can make a really good Bubba's burgers and someone can make a really bad one. That's so, <laughs> so so yeah and at the time so our slogan for plant burger was eat the change you wish to see in the world we basically consider ourselves a climate change concept right where we fly climate change one bite at a time and so that the gandhi quote eat the change you wish to see in the world is pretty powerful uh and that's how i got into cpg which i'd never been part of cpg seth I pulled him into restaurants and then he pulled me into CPG and he loved the slogan so much is that's, that's why the name of the CPG company is eat the change. So yeah, there you have here it. we are. And there we are now. Yeah. And, and yeah, and here we are now we got snacks, all these snacks, you know, that are climate friendly. So eat the snake, eat the change is a whole food snack company, meaning uh, we don't do anything processed. We have, a lot of rules within our company and barriers. So, for instance, um, I, I'm 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 not allowed to create any snacks that use the top six crops that are responsible for 57% of our food production. So, when you look at that, by the way, it's a scary thing because guess what? There's six crops that are responsible for 57% of our food production. Corn. And there's yeah, <laughs> corn, soy, wheat, wheat. Uh, um, uh, cane, cane sugar, yeah, right, and rice. So uh, I'm I, I'm not allowed to use any of those in our formulations, uh, but I do get to use the other 595,000 other crops available. A lot of good ones. There's a lot of good ones. So if you just for people like for listening to this for the first time, just imagine that most of our foods are monopolized by six crops, which fucks up our soil. Right, which fucks up everything, right? Our, our our nutrition, like the carrot today, is not as nutritious as the carrot twenty years ago. I guarantee you that. Depending right? so, on where you're getting it from. Get it, well, oh. true. Yes, true, true to that. But um, your purchase, and this goes. I think this is a really good, really good segue here. Is like your purchasing power decides a lot in the world, right? Yeah. Purchase locally, <clears throat> purchase from small organic farms who have clean soil, you're going to get healthier meat, you're going to get healthier vegetables, which in turn benefits you and your family. It's yeah. knowing where your product comes from. Same thing with meat. Know who your rancher is. Know how that animal's raised. Same thing in the fishing industry. Know how it's how it's being handled. Know it's I like that you bring up the proteins part because I, lately in my life, I'm all about the plants, right? But but it's very important to, to what you just said and people understand this is that... This is like a bipartisan thing, right? Or nonpartisan, whatever you want to like, like our planet and the way we grow food. It's not like Democrats versus Republicans. We all everybody eat, eats. right? Everybody eats and people love to eat meat, but they should be eating the quality meat that is good for the planet. That's, 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 that's done the right way and harvested the right way. Right. And, and that's, that we need to talk more about those things, right? More about sustainable seafood and more about sustainable meats because, you know, when people are like, oh, I don't believe in climate change and plants and blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. But like, do you believe in 
properly raised meat, or that's good good for you with well, not a bunch of there's antibiotics. Also a whole or... other, there's also a whole other thing, right? When you look at vegetables, there's a seasonality of vegetables, right? Mm -hmm. There's a seasonality of meats and proteins. There's yeah. also, you know, there's a seasonality of seafood. And then, you know, people know that that crab fishing, perfect example, right? Or salmon season, local salmon comes into season. But because of certain things, people want what they want when they want it now, right? Because we can fly it from other countries. So yeah. we, have, we have to make better choices. Yeah. Well, you know, and also the thing, Chris, with I, I think you and I were together when we were learning, and you might have known this, but I didn't know this, is the kampachi, yeah. right? For instance, it's it's a fish that doesn't exist in the wild, right? Well, it and did. Like, well, she said it did exist, but you couldn't. Oh, you couldn't eat it. That's right. You couldn't eat it, right? So what I loved about what they were doing there is that they weren't taking away from the local fishermen. Correct. Right. They 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 weren't doing something at, like that was replicating fish that these guys are are going out and actually fishing for. They were replicating something that completely didn't exist to the consumer to, to be able to eat, right? And I thought that to me was was mind-boggling, right? That because that... yeah, then there's no there's no escapism, crossbreeding, there's none of the issues that you would find in traditional uh, aquaculture because the animals can't go and like damage the ecosystem there because they're not it's not a regular situation. It it was yeah. so interesting. So yeah. Let's play a game. We've got yes. we've been we've been on for a good hour here, and I think everybody loves the game. So okay. no wrong answer. You ready? No wrong answer. Okay. No wrong answer. Coffee or tea? Coffee. With or without milk? Black. Okay. Ready? Hamburger, hot dog. Hamburger. Ketchup, mustard. Both together people hate me you're the first one that said that you are the first one <laughs> beef I'm from Montreal I'm sorry um beef god Montreal I was getting you know normally I ask people like you know I know your answer is always going to be maple syrup but because uh, yeah. it's like brown sugar maple syrup like those are the two options as a kid on your yeah. own it's always you know I grew totally. up Right. Brown sugar. You got brown sugar. I'm, I'm maple syrup. I grew up in Rhode Island. So we, oh, would okay. we would have brown sugar on, on, on oatmeal. And then we would put maple syrup in coffee. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Yeah. The maple syrup in coffee is delicious. It's delicious. Yeah. Okay. Um, beef or pork? Uh, I said beef, beef, beef. Okay. I try to stay away from trichinosis at all times. Oh, so. don't even get nah, just bad. Bad. We haven't had a case of trichinosis in this country in years. Oh, my God. And if your animals are raised properly, you wouldn't even get it. Okay. Uh, uh, sashimi nigiri. Sashimi. Sea urchin caviar. Oh, sea urchin. Crab lobster. Lobster. <laughs> It's 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 a fun game, right? Meatballs or sausage? Meatballs. Pasta, noodles. Pasta. Ravioli dumplings. Dumplings. <laughs> it's a risotto paella. 
High A all day. Red wine, white wine. Oof, white wine. Red wine kills me. Light beer, dark beer. No beer. I'm a non-beer person. Dark spirits, white spirits. Dark spirits. Favorite vegetable. Favorite vegetable, eggplant. Nice. It's different. <laughs> yeah. I, like that. I like that. Burrito taco. Taco. Nice. Yeah. It's just too, burritos just too much. I can't eat anything the size of your face. I mean, it's just like, it's just too big. Burritos are just too big. <laughs> <laughs> Lambrusco or champagne? Champagne. Prosciutto, jamón iberico. Ooh, jamón iberico. You're too close to Jose. Up. You're too close just, to Jose Andreas. If he hears you say I, the I, other, he's coming to your house. Uh, totally. That's why I said paella. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, Jose is literally two blocks away from me. He lives like right down the block from my office. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. He'll come over if he's not uh, yeah. saving the world. Um, <laughs> he's, he's amazing. Um, <laughs> all right. Last one chocolate or fruit? Oh, man, I'm a chocolate guy. I like chocolate. I could do chocolate. Dark or light? Oh, uh, I'm uh, cooking dark, eating just by itself light. Okay. Favorite fast food? Favorite fast food? Taco Bell? Favorite Mexican candy? pizza? <laughs> Favorite candy? Sour Kids from Montreal. Sour Patch Kids. Guilty Pleasure. Guilty Pleasure. Uh, I have a lot, but we'll give you the most recent. Uh, there's these devil dog style uh, treats in Montreal, in Canada, that we grew up with. They're called Jolouis. And they're like, a, it's like a moon pie. They're like these circle chocolatey with filling cream filling inside i just killed three boxes with my wife like in in a week's time like it's it's insane it's insane i bought you just i went into the they call like so they call like uh gas stations or little groceries little miniature grocery stores in in uh in canada or montreal they call them depreneurs right going to the depreneur i i swear this lady thought i was crazy i walked up to the counter i had like a stack of 10 boxes of joe louise just walking with her and she's like what are you doing it's like I'm driving back to the States and we don't have these. <laughs> <laughs> Spike, thank you. Um, if people want to find you, where can they find you at on your social media and website? Go for it. Yeah, so website is easy. You could just uh, find me at spiketheshef.com. It's got everything that we're up to, all the products that we're launching. Uh, also follow Eat the Change. Uh, it's where most of these delicious snacks we have mushroom jerky the carrot chews we got cosmic carrot chews for kids and then the new honest tea just iced tea justice that's right we're back with justice and uh what's my instagram spike at spike the chef so you can follow me there too so. spike thanks for taking time you're a busy man 
I appreciate it. Chris, this has been a massive pleasure. I haven't done one of these in a long time. And man, these are good. You're doing you're doing these really good. This this is awesome. So congrats to you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.